you will find throughout your, the course of your career that you click with people sometimes and you love working for them or love working with them. And you can learn a lot in that type of environment. But the flip side, working for that asshole or working for a group of assholes, you, you can really, you can figure out what not to do. And really, it's all about putting tools in your tool belt in the long term. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. I'm Steve Moore, and on today's show, I sit down with Matt Klein, virtual CISO and executive advisor at Optive Security, a leading security solutions integrator, to talk about his career, lessons learned, and advice he has for CISOs. No matter where we are in our career, we can all use a trusted advisor. Security leaders who have been in the hot seat are a great source for guidance. Whether it's looking for direction on how to build a team, respond to a breach, justify budget, or develop a business-aligned program. Virtual CISOs help organizations in security leadership transitions, help identify or coach a CISO candidate, or just help consult on strategy. Our guest today, Matt Klein, does just that. As a security leader, he shares his insights on teamwork, getting visibility at the executive level, and the right prep for effective board conversations. Virtual CISO, it can be a number of different things. Think of it as a trusted advisor, an executive advisor, talking about strategic elements of your security program, even some technical elements at a high to medium level, certainly not down in the weeds, but really a trusted person to work with a client, work with a company, and make sure that they're headed in the right direction. Also, just be that person to bounce ideas off of, bounce concepts off of, and again, just be there to listen to what they're trying to get done, what their objectives are, and make sure that they're, they're doing the right things as, as they're building their information security program. As a virtual CISO, is it typically a company who doesn't have a CISO that needs a virtual CISO, or is there cases where there may be an incumbent and uh, that person may be looking for additional help? Yeah, it's actually both of those things. So there are times where the virtual CISO model comes into play where either the CISO has left the company or it possibly it's a small to medium-sized business that doesn't have the need for a full-time uh, CISO. And then the second part that you, you mentioned was some of those situations where a CISO is gone or they're creating a CISO role and they believe they have somebody on board, on staff today, which is capable of doing the role, but needs some seasoning, needs some guidance, needs some more of that executive prep. And that's where that comes in from a virtual CISO perspective. You've had a very long career in a lot of different areas. Now you're effectively a coach and an advisor to big organizations. In that, I'm sure you encounter lots of different personalities. Describe to me a bad CISO. What's an organization? I'm not talking about the individual, but I mean, what is an organization that needs the most help that's had a bad CISO? What are the things you see? Hmm, that's an interesting question. You know, collectively, my experience talking with clients, talking with current CISOs, usually they're not, they're not talking the same language as the business. Everyone tries to get to that language of talking risk, but it's really talking about the business. What does the business do? What are those crown jewels? What are those elements of the business that are core 
to protect, whether it be whether it be data and a regulated industry. Most industries would love to protect their brand. They don't want their brand drugged through the mud in terms of a data breach. It's those type of things. So when I think about that, it's really those situations where the CISO is either removed so far from the executive team or from the board of directors that the voice of the CISO is never heard. <laughs> we can all talk about the high level things, but there's a lot of craziness that goes on under the covers of a CISO organization. You know, you've got your, your very technical folks, folks that you don't, you don't want to allow to talk to the executives at times, very deep and complicated technical challenges most of the time in most organizations. And then, of course, you have your political issues, leaders that don't get along, your staff that don't get along. So there's a lot to take care of there. Do you think in terms of difficulty, the CISO, are they often set up for success or set up for failure? One thing I like to share sometimes, and it's a bit tongue in cheek, but it's trying to do the impossible for the ungrateful. Yeah. Do you think the CISO job is something that is measurably impossible? I mean, is that something that you feel that the breach is inevitable, the problem is inevitable? What do you think about that? Is, is it impossible? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I'm never going to say that the role is impossible because I have interaction with folks where they're doing a, a fantastic job. They have what they need to get the job done. And I think that's really the, the root of CISO success. And when I mean that, when I say that, what I mean is it's budget, it's staffing, it's all those core elements to a security program, but it's more that interaction that personal interaction with the business so that there's an understanding of what the business does and what protection should be in place. You can't place a blanket over everything. It's impossible. It's expensive. You never have enough staff. So you really have to pick and choose what you want to get done inside of your program in a risk-based approach that makes sense for your business. Before you were an executive director at Optiv, you were a CISO. You were at the Medical University of South Carolina. Tell me about that. What was it like going into an environment like that? Really interesting job. I can tell you it's the most intense um, interview process I've been through. I met with 31 people all in one day. It was a crazy gauntlet from some folks on the executive team all the way down to some folks that were in the healthcare profession, uh, nurses, some analytics folks, and others, really just a wide, diverse group of folks that I met with. And the experience itself because MUSC was an academic medical center, there's really a, there's a collision of a regulated industry of healthcare and a very unregulated industry of education. It was really that education twist to it and really trying to decide, you know, how do you have almost two sets of policies, two sets of doing things at, at some respect. And that's what made the, the, the job extremely challenging yet rewarding when we, we would get something right. If you could go back and give yourself advice on day one, what advice would you have? Sure. If I had to do it all over again, I think that I would have, this might come off sounding, sounding odd, but a more aggressive approach to inserting myself at the executive level. When I arrived, it was quite apparent to me that the environment which was very new from a CISO standpoint. So I was the second CISO. First one had come in in, I think, the 2013, 2014. 
time frame. So the environment obviously needed a lot of work from a technical standpoint, needed a lot of work from a process standpoint. I hedged my bet more on that side to make sure that there were some uh, some baselines in place, a, a solid foundation for the program. And I think I neglected to make it known to my superiors that I needed more of a seat at the table. I needed a voice on a more regular basis than I was getting with the executive team and with the board. So if I were to go back again, Steve, that that's probably what I would do. If it was a 70-30 type of situation, I, I might flip it and go 70% on just setting that baseline at, at an executive level. Hopefully that makes sense. It does. And it's a perfect segue. So one of the things we want to talk today about is the interaction with executive leadership. So as a CISO or as a security leader, uh, how do you get that visibility and how do you get the comfort that comes with the visibility to speak to the ELT, to the audit committee, and ultimately uh, to the board, hopefully. So out of that, so you're a new CISO and you're socializing your new ideas. Security is a new concept. How did you first get invited uh, to interact with executive leadership and the board? So how did that come about? It was a timing thing. So I was hired in January. There was uh, an initial board meeting in February, but obviously I did, didn't have enough time to uh, survey the environment, gather my thoughts on what was happening. So uh, it took a few extra months, April. So within the first quarter, uh, I found myself talking with the board. And just in this particular situation, Steve, there was a nine-month gap between the previous CISO and myself. So it was almost a reintroduction of, you know, hey, hi, I'm, I'm the CISO and we have a security program and there's some things we need to get done type of, of meet and greet. It wasn't a, I need a million dollars and three people type of conversation. I think every situation is different, but in my case, it was just getting to know who I was talking to. Uh, in this case, it was the board of trustees. Uh, of a you know a private state institution, so just understanding who the players were and getting to the point where I was talking at a very rudimentary level uh, about what a security program was. Let's spend a moment on that. So, at a very basic, fundamental level, sort of the the Lego blocks of information security. What were you covering? So, what what type of statistic or metric or or measure were you covering as part of that introduction, if any? There were no numbers for that initial meeting. It was really concepts. You know, it was bringing some of the concepts of protecting the institution, protecting the brand of MUSC. So that's really a, a huge asset for for them to consider from a protection standpoint. We talked a lot about, of course, patient data. They're they're all very well versed in in HIPAA and what it means, uh, because uh, a lot of the board are medical professionals. Uh, so really hit on that. So it was a more of just a, a, you know, when you talk about the, the building blocks, it was really, again, level setting a foundation of here's what we're trying to protect. Here's the important things to the institution. Not so much asking for what I needed or statistics. For sure, there was no FUD, no breach statistics or anything like that. I, I certainly did not want to lead off with, uh, with that right out of the chute. <laughs> um, it was, again, very, uh, very high level get to know you, get to understand what the information security program is and what it does for the institution. When you did your first board meeting, were you nervous? 
Oh, of course. If anyone says they're not, they're lying. You're an analyst, maybe a junior level manager or director, and you're going to get pulled up into this and you have your seven or 10 minutes of fame. So you're maybe going with the CISO or with the CIO. A little bit different. What advice do you have? Yeah. Um, boy, for certainly the analyst types, I, you know, you always want somebody that can communicate clearly. So can they, at the very least, can they just talk clearly, deliver a message clearly, not sound so nervous, be at least a little bit comfortable with standing in front of a, a group of folks and delivering a message? So that's, that's number one. So from my perspective, a lot of coaching from that standpoint and setting that person up for success. I don't think you have an analyst help with something as important as an executive briefing or a board level presentation without having them first go through a public presentation of at least some of the material, if not all of the material with peers, with other trusted parties that can give really un unfettered constructive feedback so that they can deliver the message more clearly, don't fidget with their hands, all those good speaker elements. I can remember when I was first pulled up, it was actually an ELT meeting and we were given 40 minutes to present. And as the day went on, our time became smaller and smaller. And by the minute we ended up with six or seven minutes to present, you put all this effort into it and then you're proud of what you've created. And then you must decide on the fly what slides you, you cut. Isn't it funny how that happens? <laughs> <laughs> Always to the security guy too. <laughs> Correct. Uh, have you ever had that? I mean, you, you coach others, you've done it yourself directly. I mean, have you had that where they sort of have this, this sliding scale of um, thinking on your feet, even in the board meeting, especially in a board meeting? Yeah, yeah. Certainly with some group meetings, for sure. You know, our time at Anthem together. We had lots of that, right? It was, you know, you create 10 or 15 slides and you get to two. So a lot of prep work from the standpoint of really when you're helping your folks create a presentation, you tell them that there's really two in one. It's the larger presentation that if you had all the time in the world, here's the set of slides that you would use, kind of walk through and give people time to ask questions and, and be really open with your presentation. And then there's the what the scenario that you just described, okay, you just got cut down to three minutes and maximum two slides. What are you going to tell people? And so it's really going through those two exercises together continuously on, on almost any presentation you do. That's the long version and the short version and deciding how you're going to deliver both of those messages. Got it. So as a skill giving, creating the next leader or the current leader, whatever message they have really having a distilled version of the same. So uh, a full length and then sort of cliff's notes. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, um, you know, you and I had the same leader at Anthem for a long, long time. And one of the messages was, you know, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them the story, and then tell them what you told them. It's that big message of delivering it from summary to down in detail as far as what's appropriate for the conversation. Um, but then there's that, there's that front set of slides. It's usually that two to five, three to five core slides, big picture, big concepts, strategy, vision uh, type of slides that you want to have ready because that, that's what resonates within with that five to 10 minute conversation that you're going to have with folks that they're going to glance at a slide and they want to get it within you know 15 seconds. Absolutely. So you mentioned something there. So we worked together at Anthem. You were a senior director last uh, there. Describe to me your worst day at Anthem. 
there were a lot of not so fun days, as you know. <laughs> but honestly, the, the worst day was the phone call of the the beginning of the breach. And the reason for me was that we had done so much. You know, I, before the breach, I'd been there about seven years, and we had done so much with the resources that we were given to build the program, to build those foundation blocks, to create world-class programs in certain areas of the program, that it was surreal. Exactly. I would say it was one of the more challenging moments for my career as well. Certainly a shot of adrenaline as well. Oh, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? So in crisis from a leadership perspective, what was that like for you? Yeah. Well, the challenging part for me was I was remote at the time. You know, I was out of state. I was not working out of a core Anthem location. And Anthem, of course, headquartered in Indianapolis. So when the phone call came in, of course, it's, okay, what do I do, right? What, what do you need me to do uh, type of discussion first? What myself and obviously some of our peers did is we jumped on planes as fast as we could so that we could all be together in Indianapolis and, and start to work on, on the problem. One of the reasons why I like to ask about describing your worst day is it's a great teaching moment. Mm. So when you have a phone call, there's been a breach, there's this rush of adrenaline, and you now jump on a plane to be together. What's the lesson from a leadership perspective? You're going to go be with everyone, and then you're going to do what? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the first message is that you want to be together because it's a serious situation, and it's something that most everyone had never imagined could happen. So you wanted to be together and, and at least give people an outlet to say, God, can you believe this happened? How could this happen? And just give people an outlet as a leader. So that's number one. Number two is just be calm. Nobody wants to see a leadership team running around, losing their cool, acting outside of character. And it just doesn't go well. It doesn't give a sense of calm to your staff so that they can deliver you know, the tasks and the activities they need to do to, to get to the root of the problem and fix the problem. So there's a crisis and it's all hands. You fly to Indianapolis and you take on additional responsibilities. What were those? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in my role, I was, I was leading an application security team, web application um, scanning and all that fun stuff. Uh, I was doing web access management and an enterprise encryption program that was very, very new to the organization. So those are my core set of, of services that I was delivering to the organization. As you can imagine in a breach, and as, as you know, lots of things outside of just the core responsibilities needed to be done. I raised my hand and said, let me, let me try to herd the cats a little bit. Let me try to insert myself in pulling back some material that we had uh, constructed about a year prior and say, here, here's our response to what we need to make this right. And look over the budget, you know, pulling together numbers of uh, product quotes and all of the, all of the different leaders, uh, just trying to pull all that information together into, into a coherent breach response story. No small task, obviously tense situation, lots of people act very differently in, in stressful situations. Trying to pull information together was a lot of what I was trying to do for, for our, our leader at the time, who was also kind of, I, I think our phrase was playing above the rim, doing some things above his pay grade, talking to folks that you know, needed to be informed 
on a regular basis. So it was really left to us to pick up the slack there and, and pick up some other duties that weren't our traditional roles. One of the things you picked up was the management of the financials, the great ask that goes along with any breach. You're now an advisor to others that may be responding to or, or hoping not to, uh, not to have the same, same fate. What advice do you have related to that? My advice is you're always going to have gaps in your program. Is you're always, you, you never have complete coverage in your program. So come to grips with that. Yet, always document what the gaps are and certainly document what it would take to fill the gap at a minimal level and then at a, I would say, the ultimate level, um, a perfect level. That at least prepares you for the story, which as a leader in the middle of a breach and post-breach, you'll be questioned. Even though it's a terrible day for the company, you will still be questioned. Do you really need this money? Do you really need these people? Do Do we really need to do this thing? And the more that you can document what you need to get to better, the easier the conversations will go and you can show your work. That was a lot of our joke, right? It was it was great. You said you're going to do all these things. So show me your work. So where does that come from? Why do you need $2 million and five people? Uh, I don't understand. So really work to plan the answer before the situation has ever happened. It doesn't have to be a perfect deck. You just have to have your answers of why we didn't have something in place. Here's how much it will cost. Here's the things that we need to do to get those things in place. That should be what you talk to your executives about when they question what you're asking for. So with that, uh, let's say that you have this sort of three-year plan that's really a wish list. Have you ever had a a situation where you have a three-year plan, a problem happens, and then you're asked to do a three-year plan in six months or nine months? Uh, And if yes, what was that like? And, And how do you manage that? So I guess the best answer I can give is that that is standard operating procedure as far as I'm concerned. You should always have a plan. I'm not going to say that it has to be a three-year plan, but at least has to go 12 to 18 months for sure. Things move at light speed. In IT and information security, of course, we've got to be moving the needle and we've got to be headed in a direction which makes sense, which means there's milestones, goals, things to check the box on that need to happen year in and year out. Make it at least an annual event that you get your own leadership team, your security leadership team, and even some folks in IT or your legal partners, HR and others, and determine what's next in a program. My favorite number is about two years. You know, what am I going to do immediately in the year that I'm in? What do I think I'm going to do in the following year? And if you want to have a third year, that's fine, but it's awfully fuzzy uh, what you can get done in that third year, not not knowing how successful you'll be in the first two. And the threat landscape changes um, as well. For me, Steve, that's, that's really what I as a leader leading an information security program, that's what I lived by. Create those plans, keep them up to date, keep them rolling forward. From a leadership perspective, I think we both had an interesting observation. Before either of us were in leadership, director titles or anything above that, we sought one another out uh, randomly. And we even had a call. We would get together to try to solve problems. And this plays a role in uh, ultimately in, in board prep, or at least executive presentation and, uh, and vetting issues. Tell me about that. Yeah, that call was great. 
And it was born out of just a couple of folks that were, we'll just call them high performers, folks that cared, folks that were a little bit frustrated by how things didn't get done. And we wanted to sit down, talk about our problems of venting, a safe venting place, and just talk through, so how do we get to a better place? You know, I think you and I have talked a couple of times about making sure you're getting a couple of trusted advisors, uh, maybe in the leadership team, if you're not in the leadership team, that when you come and you do a proposal and say, we really need to do this, it's really important for the company, it's important for the information security program, that you have at least one or two people sitting around that table that are shaking their head and saying, yes, I agree. So that call was kind of a safe place for a few of us that, uh, that really wanted to collaborate on, on how to get things done. I love that call. It, it, it was a uh, stand-up comedian show at, at times, and, and you were that guy, Steve, uh, always brought some levity to the call and certainly uh, would uh, bring us back to earth sometimes as well. And I think each of, each of us did that from time to time and some of the challenges that we were having. I do seek to do that in some of my newer roles as well. Just get you know a couple of people together that you trust and that you're not going to be embarrassed if you practice a presentation or have a view that maybe is slightly not what everyone else is thinking and you feel safe that you could say it out loud and not be laughed out of the room. I, I miss that call, to be, to be honest with you. That the concept, and I think what's important for the listener is that, that uh, I too miss it, by the way, is that when presenting to the board and when, or the ELT or, or an audit committee, whatever, that you're going to be in that room for an hour or half an hour, whatever the presentation length is, but you may spend a month uh, socializing and vetting and, and really refining that message. We were at the time individual contributors. So for the pre-manager, pre-director, even the person that's that's presently the CISO or whatever, having a place where they can vet the ideas and have people they can trust. So uh, that, that I think was the lesson for me. How did we find one another and what was the call uh, called? What was the... Uh... <laughs> well, it was called the gangster call. And, I, and I'm pretty sure that that was your name. <laughs> um, how did we find each other? Well, I, I, think it, I think in any organization, if you're a top performer, whatever you want to call that, you know who the people are, you figure it out. Sometimes it's just being in the same room, being in a meeting and, or being next to them in a conversation that they're having with someone else that you know that this is somebody who, who knows a lot who I think I, I want to get to know and I think can really elevate my level of knowledge because they, they sound really smart. There's also the, hey, Steve, I need to get XYZ done. Who's the person I can talk to to, to really help me push this, this uh, over the hump? So I think our call grew from like, what, three to, to five or six, I think at its height. So it wasn't huge, but it was enough where we had different leaders from different parts of the program that really contributed uh, different experiences, different background, different ways of doing things to, to achieve success. Absolutely. And the lesson there is out of that workspace, every one of the folks that were there are, there's multiple CISOs, two, uh, several staff vice presidents, ultimately. Uh, everyone on that call went from individual contributor to multi, multi, multi-level promotions in a very large organization, mm-hmm. despite a crisis. And so I think that's a not only did we get better, but it, it changed our career. Absolutely. Speaking of dialogue, uh, we had a, a dialogue in our last conversation that you made a comment that I really liked. You said you can learn a lot working for an asshole. <laughs> what, what did you mean by that? 
you know, life is, is full of experiences, positive and negative. I think everyone can agree on that. And everyone grows from, from all of those experiences, learns from those experiences, and your career is no different. You will find throughout your, the course of your career that you click with people sometimes and you love working for them or love working with them. And you can learn a lot in that type of environment. But the flip side, working for that asshole or working for a group of assholes, you, you can really, you can figure out what not to do. And really, it's all about putting tools in your tool belt in the long term. And sometimes you pick up tools that it's like, hey, there's a, there's a nail and, and here's a hammer and I'm going to hammer that nail and everything works great. And other times you've got a wrench and you're trying to pound that nail and you're like, what the hell am I doing? What is this person doing? Um, and to relate that to the career, it's, you know, think about a time when you've been in a meeting with a group of folks and somebody just does or says something really off the wall. And it's just, it might be the right thing to say, but maybe it's the complete wrong audience. It's like, no, that's not the way to do this. We're going to do it this way. And it's all about context. So I would say you're going to learn a lot from the folks that you work with and for on the negative side and the positive side. Take as much as you can from both of those things. Determine what your brand is going to be and how you're going to operate, certainly with a slant toward being as positive as you can, helping people along the way, you know, paying it forward type of thing. I couldn't agree more. One of my lessons I took away, you know, we've probably worked with people or for people that manage with fear. And yeah. I never wanted that to be part of any program I built or any of the people I was around. I feel like, especially in our industry, people, if there's a team that's being led with fear, uh, they will not innovate. And so if you're sort of managing that way, uh, we need risk takers. We need people that are going to feel safe. And if they don't feel safe, we'll end up with security programs where people just feel indifferent and mediocrity will prevail. Yeah. Speaking of leadership, we often find in InfoSec, or I believe that the best technician is sometimes made the manager or the team lead. And ultimately that there's this sort of chain reaction that occurs. And then you have these very technical leaders and that's okay sometimes. But oftentimes, the skills that are required to be a good leader are not the same to be a good technician. In many cases, then the team suffers in more human ways. Uh, do you think we have an issue there? Yeah, yeah, I, I like what you said there. And I think, I think we do. But I don't think we're so different from other uh, either parts of the business or industry. I think everyone has these type of issues where leaders are put in place and they're, they're not properly ready. And I think there's, you know, from my standpoint, my own experiences, I just remember entertaining it and thinking, you know, am I really ready for this? So mentally, you've got to get through that, that career change. It's a switch, right? It's a, I'm hands away from keyboard. I'm now managing people and I'm managing careers. I think in a lot of cases, we do a disservice because of exactly what you said. That top technical person, just because he's the smartest guy in the room, gets put in charge of people. And you know what? He may be the guy that you never want to talk to an executive. What kind of message are we sending there, right? We're elevating someone to a role to manage people, and they're not ready to talk uh, and manage above. They're not ready to talk and manage sideways with their peers to collaborate and get things done. So I think what we need to do is 
really push people that, that want that leadership track, push them toward what leadership is all about, push them toward humility, take risks, be innovative, and really inspire your folks to be better. And certainly, you know, when we start to talk about a strategic plan and, you know, why the heck do I come to work every day? That's generally what people are looking for. What are we doing here today, tomorrow, this whole year? Why do I get up and come to, come to this workplace every day? And a lot of times it's because I have a good leader who has a plan and who has shown me a way to get my work done in an efficient way, gives me the freedom to do my work however I want to do it, as long as I get to an outcome, and is helping me progress in my career. That is what I think is missing in a lot of ways from, from security is that we have grown up out of IT. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one in, in my transition, I know I had to give away sort of everything that, that made me comfortable before, right? So I was the individual contributor. I was the ringer, kind of the, uh, the leg breaker sometimes. Yeah. And, and you're, so you're meant to be uh, very sharp and sometimes very blunt. And switching that completely around. So now being a leader of people, it's more about understanding emotional intelligence, understanding that keeping them safe, helping them develop their career, making them feel like they've becoming more valuable to themselves and to the company. And how do you exploit that uh, to their benefit? All those things. It's a very different set of skills. I mean, you feel kind of a lonely yeah. feeling at first. Like you're like, okay, I, I've given away. You even mentioned staying off the keyboard. That was one of my rules. Uh, if you were yeah. a manager director in my framework you gave up your console access because you'd have to be focused on a leader uh, as being a leader. Do you agree to that? And Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, completely agree with it. You know, a lot of what we're talking about boils down to trust and it's two, it's a two way street with trust. You know, your people need to trust you that you're doing the right things to lead whatever program they're working in to a better place and their career to a better place. And the trust, the opposite way is you need to trust your people to be really smart. And you need to have the trust in yourself that you can sit in a meeting and not be the smartest guy in the room anymore and have the humility to say, you know what? I don't have that answer, but I've got some really smart folks on my team that are going to get me that answer. And I'll have it by four o'clock today, tomorrow, next week, whatever the answer is. But really be humble, right? You're not going to know everything. I, I, I don't know how to do that. Uh, I expect you to go, go you know, figure that out, get it done. What do you need? Do you need me to buy you a book? Do you need me to send you to a class? And, and that's the leadership interaction that I think we should try to foster, that collaboration, that dialogue. It's not leader versus individual contributor. We have to get rid of that. It's a group of people working together to solve problems at, at the end of the day in information security. You name your problem, name your group. It's all the same. We have to work together. There's different roles, of course. But if we can't treat each other the same, look at each other the same, and have that element of trust, it's really hard to move a program forward. Switching gears just really quick, how did a how did a an accounting major baseball player uh, end up in IT? <laughs> oh man, long story. I'll give you the short answer. So I was uh, working some accounting jobs as I got out of college and came across an organization, worked in an accounts payable department, and my partner in accounts payable, her husband just happened to be a vice president of operations at a small little company that was doing the first online stock trading, mutual fund trading, and investment news online, 1995. So it was a 
hey, I'm really thinking about getting into this because my sister was in technology for a, for a long time at the point, at least at least a decade. And so I think I want to want to give this a try. She handed my resume in, had an interview, got a job, started talking on the phone, tech support, and zero background. Talk about being thrown in the deep end of the pool. So how does, uh, what, what position did you play in baseball and how did baseball apply the skills you learned there apply to being a good leader? Yeah. Yeah. So most of my life I played third base. I got to college and they looked at me and said, well, you're too small to play third base. So move over to second. So in college I played second base. I think one lesson there was I was willing to do whatever the team needed to be successful. I said, yep, I'll go play second. I'll go figure it out. So that's number one. Number two is just any team sport. You have to learn to get along. I have a son who's in baseball now. I have a daughter who's in sports as well. And that's one of the messages that continually comes up is there's friction between people. It's natural. Humans have to figure it out. And the better you can figure it out, the better you can be a good teammate, help a person when they're, they're having some issues, prop them up when they're in a slump, the better the better leader you will be seen. Matt, what's the career path for a CISO after being one? I think it's multifaceted. I, I think, you know, CISOs can go from being a CISO in a small organization to a medium or a large organization. I think there's a role in what I'm doing today, more that executive advisor, virtual CISO role. I think there's the product side like you have gone to. I think um, there's lots of experiences once you're a CISO that you can you can bring to different groups of folks. And I think as we progress in our careers and as we amass all of these experiences, I think all of us need to be more cognizant of how we give back to the security community because I think we're hypocritical in the way that we say we have a, a resourcing problem, but we're we're too busy to to do the educational things, to to set up internship programs, to you know, do the harder things to develop some of the next generation of security professionals. Would you agree that we fundamentally have a lack of role models within information security? That is an interesting question, Steve. I never pondered that. I think to some extent, yes, because I, even myself, I'm not quite sure who I would call a role model specific to information security. Certainly, we've had good leaders in the past, both of us, that we, we might call role models? That's a great question. Wish I had a better answer for you. I think it's a great answer. Uh, and I think the fact that it's difficult to answer kind of answers it itself. And that's really one of the core motivators for this podcast is to explore leaders like yourself, their career, their challenges, their leadership style, and tease out some of that body of knowledge and make it available for others to be that virtual role model, because I don't think we have enough people to cite. Uh, we have uh, many people that we can look to for technical leadership. There's certainly some active voices in the community, but the exploration of what we cover today is is that element, is that you, know, you can be that you are today and can be that role model for the next CISO. Well, I'm happy that I can contribute, Steve. It was fun. That concludes this episode of the new CISO. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more episodes, suggest a topic or nominate a guest, please visit exabeam.com forward slash podcast. 